So we're going to remember that last week Jesus ended by making the promise, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus was saying hardship, difficulty, sometimes suffering are real in pursuit of him and of his kingdom on this earth, but giving great encouragement. No one who gives up or who suffers or endures hardship will fail to be blessed or be rewarded. And so he says this then on the heels of that. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. The word of God. Friends, before I begin the sermon, let me, let me preface it by saying that we're going to be talking about hardship and about suffering this morning. And a couple things need to be said about suffering because it's a vast subject uh, before we head into it. One is that God is not the author of any suffering, so he doesn't author any of it. The second one is that the scripture says that the Lord turns toward the good of those who love him anything and everything that we endure or go through. Romans 8.28 So he doesn't author any of it, but works it all toward the good of those who love him. Now inside of that, it just needs to be acknowledged that there are different kinds of sufferings. And we're going to be talking about a particular kind this morning, suffering that comes to us as we follow Jesus and seek his kingdom. And that's going to be different than some of the sufferings or the hardships that we've gone through in our lives. And so when you hear me talk about hardship or use the word suffering this morning, don't hear everything that you've gone through uh, referenced directly into that. Okay, That's my, my preference, preface. All right, let me begin with a little story that I uh, ran across this past week. Everybody familiar with TED Talks? I watched the TED Talk and heard this story, and it tied directly into this sermon. Story comes, true story comes out of a small northeast um, corner of Montana, small town called Libby, Montana, uh, and maybe 12, 15,000 people. And inside of Libby, Montana, is this incredible woman by the name of Gayla Benefield. Gayla, growing up, was um, not like the other young women of the town. She wanted to study mechanical things, and she wanted to work where the men were working. And one of the jobs she got along the way was meter reading. And so Gayla um, is, is out doing her work during the day, and she's going from house to house, and she's reading meters. And as she does, she notices this kind of strange thing, namely that in the homes that she's going by, there seems to be a, a high level of middle-aged to slightly older than middle-aged men on oxygen in their homes. 
so she kind of tucks it away and, uh, you know, just notices it. And a few years later, at the age of 59, five days before her dad's set to start collecting his retirement benefits, he dies. And Gayla, at the time, um, chalks it up to him being tired because he'd worked his whole life in, in the um, mines nearby. But then a couple years later, her mom died around the same age. And she, she puzzled over it because her mom came from a, a family of people who like lived into their 90s. I mean, everybody in the family seemed to live to a ripe old age. And then her mom died like 30 years younger than that. And so she just began to think and to kind of, where is this coming from? My dad died young, my mom died young. And then she thought about how a few years earlier when her mom had broken her leg, she'd gone into the hospital and she had a bunch of x-rays, six of them actually. And only two of them were of her leg and four were of her lungs. She wondered, well, why did she have lung x-rays? And then um, she got to thinking about the town that they lived in and how the main industry of the town was a mine. It was a vermiculite mine. Vermiculite is um, something that has many, many uses, but some of them are soil conditioners. It's used in... um, What do you put in your attic? Insulation. Insulation. It's used to insulate houses. It's used on sports fields. It's used in just dozens of products all over. And vermiculite is harmless. Harmless. But as she researched vermiculite, she found out that sometimes it contains impurities that go by the name of tremulous something or other that are very toxic forms of asbestos. And when she learned that, she put all the pieces together and she said, I think people in this town are dying younger from asbestos poisoning. And like anybody who has a light bulb moment like that, she thought, I've got to tell everybody. They're going to want to know. And so she began to tell everyone she could think of, we're being poisoned by asbestos. The mining company and the do 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 And you know what? Nobody wanted to hear it. Nobody believed her, not one person. In fact, they eventually got so fed up with her that a group of them got together and made bumper stickers that said, yes, I'm from Libby, Montana, and no, I don't have asbestosis. Talk about discouraging. Well, she persisted. She kept researching, kept looking, kept telling people. Finally, a man wandered through town who was researching the history of mines in the area. So she proposed her theory to him, and he said, I don't think you're right. And then he went back to Seattle, and he did his own research, and his research told him that she was very likely indeed right. And so she, he called her up, and he told her, and she thought, finally, I have an ally, somebody in the scientific community who's saying this is probably right. And so she went back, and she told people. She said, look, the scientist is saying this is probably what's happening. You know what they said to her? They said, no way. If that was the case, the doctors would have told us. The mining company surely has to know this, and they would definitely not let that happen to us. And the men, the big burly men who'd worked all their lives in the mining industry said, no way, you know, every, every, um, every t- kind of job has its like accidents and its risks and, you know, it's got stuff, but we're not victims to this. And they just kept right on ignoring her. Until finally, she caught the attention of someone in the EPA. And the EPA came and did some testing. 
and in 2002 revealed that they had found that Libby, Montana had a mortality rate of 80 times the U.S. national average, that the mine was indeed very toxic, and that people were dying of asbestos poisoning. You think they acknowledged that Gala was right? No. They still continue to say there's no way this could be happening. There's a legal word or a legal definition that's used to describe something like this. It's called willful blindness. Willful blindness happens any time that we could know something and really we should know something, but we still, in fact, don't know it. We could and we should, but we don't. And actually, even though I've just given you a big example of a whole group, thousands of people participating in willful blindness, I think it's something that we do as individuals very regularly. In fact, I think probably everybody who's ever gotten married has done this. He's amazing. She's perfect. And about somewhere between six weeks and six months into the marriage, these annoying habits that came out of nowhere. Where did that come from? Seemed to pop up. In fact, I believe that we have it on record. Well, I think this is... Is this okay to say, Anne? Yeah, okay. So, so she hasn't... Her sister has an email saying to her, he's perfect. And then... We get married and she's going, Why, what do you mean I, I have to use separate towels for drying the dishes and drying my hands? What do you mean? <laughs> Someone's going, see, I'm telling you. <laughs> you know why we don't see those things? Well, we see them and we downplay them and we ignore them and we make ourselves willfully blind because they don't fit our narrative. And so the narrative of Libby, Montana is things like that don't happen here. And the narrative of every person heading into marriage is something like, I'm going to find the perfect person who's going to compliment me, make me feel, whatever. You know, I'm going to spend the rest of my... And so things that don't fit the narrative, we tend to downplay and not see. Things like, we're going to Jerusalem and everything that's been written about the Son of Man is going to happen. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to flog him, mock him, spit on him, crucify him, and Jesus might very well have just been speaking to a wall. Because the text says they don't understand him and the meaning was hidden from them. Well, how's the meaning hidden? Jesus isn't hiding it. He's telling it to them. And he's not speaking cryptically. He's not hiding it inside of what he's saying. Everybody would have known what the Son of Man meant. That was a reference from the book of Daniel about the expected Messiah who's going to come and save Israel and the world. They would have known that. But it doesn't fit the narrative that they have of what a Messiah should be like and how God should act. 
Because their narrative says, Jesus, what are you doing? You've got all the power. You have already been healing the sick and driving out demons and you're raising the dead. Obviously, you've conquered death. Jesus, everybody's starting to rally to you. Now's the time. Up until this point, we've watched over and over in the Gospel of Luke as the religious leaders have not seen, they have missed what God's doing through Jesus. And it probably hasn't surprised us that they've been blind, maybe willfully blind, because we can see reflected to us that these men are quite legalistic, that they're concerned with being in control that they don't have a whole lot of the love of God or of people in them. But all of a sudden, we've shifted. We're not talking about those bad guys out there, those religious leaders. We're talking about Jesus' own followers. Hearing, can, should, and don't. Willfully blind to what God is doing in Jesus. And so I think... The thing that we want to puzzle over and wrestle over just a little bit this morning is what does that mean for us in terms of the way that we as Jesus followers might also be willfully blind to things that don't fit our narrative for how God can and should work. I want to think about that on a couple levels. And the first level is just the same as what's happening in the text here. Jesus is saying, I'm going to suffer. And they can't hear him. And you might say, well, Pastor Dave, we welcome Jesus' suffering. We are thankful. I mean, we've been singing all about it this morning. And we praise the Lord that he suffered. We are so thankful for the benefits we receive from Jesus' suffering. But does our narrative include entering in to Jesus' suffering at all? The Apostle Paul writes... In his letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection from the dead and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Well, if I, I'm not running away from them. If I have to, I'd be willing if Christ asks me to. Well, how do you know whether he's asking you to or not? Does it fit your narrative that the Lord might ask you, like he asked his son Jesus, to walk toward something that would be really hard for the sake of the kingdom of God? Let's think about these words for a quick moment. The author of Hebrews writes about Jesus. For the joy that was set before him He endured the cross. What was that joy that was set before Jesus on the other side of the cross? That joy that was set before him was that when he went through death and conquered it, and when he was raised to new life and ascended to heaven, he would get to share that life. He would get then to work all across the earth to begin not just localized in Galilee, but all over to draw human beings stuck under the burden and the slavery of sin, bondage, and he would draw them up and out. 
And he would get to pour his life, his love into them. He would get to draw them back to the Father who loves them. And the scripture tells us he's got so much joy over this that every time one sinner turns back to God, there's a party in heaven that they're jumping and they're shouting and they are, they are just hats off. Someone's come back to the Lord. There's so much joy. He has so much joy in sharing his life. So much so that he had that joy before him when the Father said, go toward a place where you will be handed over and mocked and spat on and whipped and killed. Brothers and sisters who are growing up to be like Jesus Christ, does that joy exist in us so much so that our narrative would include the Lord drawing us toward places, people where we would go through hardship. We can never reproduce what Jesus did. We don't atone for sin. But surely we are called into difficult situations and places in order to, or for the joy set before us. Well, I'm not that like afraid of or hardship and suffering. Well, this is a way to, to think about whether we are or not. When hardship comes into our life, how do we treat it? Do we treat it as an anomaly, something to be gotten rid of? Do we want to get rid of hardship the way we want to get rid of bed bugs? You know? Fumigate it. Get them out of here. No, we don't need bed bugs. That's right. But we don't like hardship either. I think, for me, I'll just share with you, for me, and I, I offer it to you as well, that one, the question that this text really forces us to wrestle with is, is my heart and my hope truly and truly set on, to use the words of Peter, the grace that will be revealed to us when Jesus comes again? Is it set on the kingdom of God in its fullness in heaven? Or am I really trying to create my own little version of heaven here on earth? Don't answer that right away. Uh, but wrestle through this. How many, how many ways don't we subtly try to craft and arrange the pieces of our life here and now to make them just as good and pleasurable and free from hardship and pain as we can? You're not hearing me say pain and suffering are good things. You're not hearing me say go seek after them. But pay attention to the decisions that you make and the things that orient your life You'd never say, I'm looking for heaven on earth. But how many of us in our heart of hearts can say, my hope is truly set on and the thing that I'm seeking after and, and because I'm seeking after that kingdom of God, which will fully come when he returns, I'm willing to endure and in fact I even expect 
hardship, as I enter into difficult circumstances, as I walk alongside intentionally people that are in hardship, that are in suffering. I expect to be um, looked down upon for my faith. Really, really, if I'm honest, I want as much comfort as possible. I do. But Jesus is asking this morning again through this text, will we allow his life to be formed in us that would listen for the Father's narrative? We can't hear the Father through the Spirit speak if our ears are blocked by a narrative that says my life is going to look like We can't. Unless in his mercy he comes so blindingly that he knocks us off a horse like he did for Paul. But by and large, the Lord looks for people who are questioning and listening and humble. And so I think that kind of transitions us into the second short piece I'd like us to reflect on. Namely, that if it's easy for us to be willfully blind in this area, it probably means that we're susceptible to being willfully blind in other areas around the question of, God, is this you working? Or, God, can you work in that way? And I want to tell you, the longer you're in the church, the more dangerous this is. Because we human beings like control. It makes us feel safe when we know how things are going to be and look And stuff outside of that threatens us. And so we want to know, this is how God works. This is what God's up to. But no one could have conceived that God would have been up to the redemption of the world through the death of his son. And so that ought to lend us, cause us to pause and say, Lord, I probably would have done the same thing as your disciples, but now that I'm hearing, would you cultivate a deeper sensitivity, a deeper humility in me that when I see something that looks like you or I hear you, that I would that I would be slow of speech, that I would be prayerful, that I would be asking God, How are you at work? How do you want to be at work? How can I join you in that? Here's the last thing I want to say uh, by way of application, and this is, I think, massive encouragement. Nobody believed him. He said it six times in the Gospel of Luke, three of them directly to his disciples. Nobody believed him, and it, and it happened. He said something else really directly and really clearly. I'm coming back. I'm coming back to judge the living and the dead. I'm coming back to bring the fullness of my new creation. And when I come back, I'll wipe every tear and your dwelling place will be with God and there will be sin, there will be night, no longer. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. 
And so let us not only not be willfully blind, but let us bear out that message to other people. Let us pray that nobody would remain in blindness to the person of Jesus, to the death of Jesus, to the return of Jesus, to the love of Jesus. And that's probably going to require some hardship on our parts. And so let's pray, Lord, make us willing. Make us willing to go wherever you call and do whatever you say. For your glory, love, because, Lord, because you lay down your life and showed us what love looked like. Let's pray. Lord, we do acknowledge before you again that our, our hearts are infinitely capable of self-deception, of tuning out the things that we don't want to hear, and yet in our heart of hearts we say, Lord, we absolutely want to hear everything that you say. You are the, you are the way and the truth and the life. As Peter said, you are the one with the words of life. And Lord, we've tasted and we've seen that life and we want more of it. And so we want to follow you, Jesus, wherever you're calling us. And we pray, make those calls clear to each one of us. Strengthen us in our hearts to follow you even into hardship. Not focusing on hardship, but on the joy set before us. Lord, thank you that you invite us to share your joy. Thank you that we get to share in the party in heaven. And Lord, we pray, increase that party that's happening in heaven, even on earth and in this place. Amen. So Lord, as we respond by singing, open the eyes of my heart. Lord, would you open our hearts now? Would you lift up your hearts to receive this blessing from God? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And so be blessed to live in that love, in that freedom, and to serve him as priests.